Thank you very much for being here, and I appreciate your faithfulness. And I do ask you to open your Bible, if you would please, this evening to John chapter 12, to begin with. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This is uh, one of the instances in the Bible about uh, people and individuals, in this case some, uh, maybe more than one, who wanted to see the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 12, look down to verse 20 and verse 21. John 12, 20 says, There were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. And verse 21 says, The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. What's interesting about this particular case, we have uh, no... Uh, other word about it. We don't have any idea why these Greeks wanted to meet, see the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can assume several things, and assumptions when it comes to Scripture are not always the wisest. But there is one thing for sure. When you come to the Scripture and you uh, uh, look at and get a grip on some of the cases of people saying something about the Lord, wanting to see Him, wanting to meet Him, unless the context expands it, uh, the idea is that there must have been something of a curious interest in seeing Him, maybe because they'd heard so much about Him. That was pretty much John, the, the um, Baptist ministry, was to preach everywhere he could go and to raise people's awareness of Him and using it in a way that uh, folks would be drawn to search Him out and seek Him out. And so consequently, John the Baptist was part of the reasoning behind much of the exposure Jesus Christ got in regard to who he was, what he was about. And uh, John was uh, wise enough and mature enough that he wasn't interested in drawing a crowd. He was interested in the crowd getting to know who Jesus Christ was. And people would come to see him. So many subscribed to um, the Greeks coming as a work of John the Baptist, that somehow, some way, in his preaching, teaching ministry, uh, he conveyed that. But my favorite of all the stories about someone wanting to see is one that, uh, well, I learned about in kindergarten class in church, and that found in Luke chapter 19. And any time we mention Luke 19, you ought to immediately remind yourself of Zacchaeus, because that's his story. But look at chapter 19. And for a few moments, let me call your attention to some things here that I think are, are rather fascinating. What we don't get done tonight, we'll get done the next time we're together. Look at, John, at Luke chapter 19, and notice in verse number 1, Luke 19 says, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. We make a note of that, and we have before, that uh, Jericho was considered a resort city, and Jesus Christ was not one to just uh, take a week off and rest and relax and so forth. Uh, so he wasn't into resorts. And so it's interesting that he never spent any time in Jericho. He was always coming in and going out. And there was no indication that anything took place within. Chapter 19 of Luke is the only story that suggests that anything even happened there uh, pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry. So in verse number 2, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. 
Verse 3, and he sought to see Jesus. Same thing that the Greeks did when they said we would see Jesus. Uh, Zacchaeus didn't so much say that, but his evidence is and everything that he did in the story that he tried to see him, and he wanted to see him. In this case, it would be most likely that it was just simple, pure curiosity who this man was of which he'd heard something. So in verse 3, he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press because he was little of stature. And he ran before, climbed up in a sycamore tree. By the way, uh, you should not get the idea that this sycamore tree is the sycamore tree that you've seen in Johnson County. Uh, that's not what this is. This is a low-hanging fig tree. And they were called sycamores for a reason unknown to anybody that's in the geography of the Middle East. They don't know why they were called that. That's just what they were called. But they technically were what was called low-hanging fig trees. So in this case, he was called a sycamore tree He to see him, for he was to pass that way. In verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, saw him, said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down. For today I must abide at thy house. In verse 6, he made haste, he came down and received him joyfully. Verse 7, and when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood, said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Verse 9, Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. What's interesting about this story is it is an answer to a story that took place earlier in chapter 18 of the book of Luke, and it gives you the answer to a question the disciples ask. Let me show it to you. Look from where you are in chapter 19, and it may be on the other page in your Bible as it is in mine. It's just across the page. But in chapter 18, in chapter 18 of Luke, Luke in chapter 18, verse 18, here's what it says. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save the one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, Do not kill, Do not steal, Do not bear false witness, Honor thy father and thy mother. Verse 21, He said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, He said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, Sell all that thou hast, and distribute to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Verse 23, when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that, he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Verse 25, for it is easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 26, And they heard it said, they that heard it said, Question, Who then can be saved? Verse 27, He said, Things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So from chapter 18, verse 18 through 27, Verse 23 emphasizes, as it did with the cha chapter 19 with Zacchaeus, it indicates this ruler was rich. 
And verse 27 then uh, says in context of this rich man, he says it's actually easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And I'm one of those guys that's not so sure that this needle's eye has anything to do with any of the, you know, the very close quarters of entering and getting into the city or out of the city and saying it was a, it was so small it was called the needle's eye. I admit there's a place there called the needle's eye, but I'm not sure that's what he's talking about. I, I, maybe it'd be possible for a camel to go through there. Maybe somebody's got a slender camel who's got long legs and a narrow body, and he could just walk right through it. One thing I know this camel, camel could not do is go through the eye of a needle that you sew up clothing with. I know he can't do that. The ideal is it's impossible for a rich man here. It's not talking about just because you have money, you can't go to heaven. It's about a person, as in the case with a ruler, who had money, and he got the money between him and a relationship with God. That's the point of that story. And the point of the story is this guy can't go to heaven for any reason because he is trusting his riches and not trusting what the Lord could do for him. His riches meant more to him than his faithfulness in trusting God. That's the point. So I say that it's not about a eye of a needle being a big block wall where there's a thin, slender place and you had to wiggle your way through it. Somebody might get through there. I mean, nobody, but nobody, but nobody's going to get into heaven trusting their riches, period. I believe it's absolute, and I believe that's what the Bible is saying. So the question then, verse 26, the people who were listening, and they were a bunch. Verse 26 says, they said to him in who heard it, tell us who can be saved. If this guy can't be saved, and he kept all these commandments and did all these things that were good, uh, then you tell us who can be saved. What they're really saying, you tell us somebody who's rich can get to heaven. Show us somebody. So he comes right over to chapter 19, and he gives you the story about Zacchaeus. These stories are connected. They're cousins, and they work together. So if you want to understand the story about the rich young ruler, then there's a part of what you have to understand about Zacchaeus and his story. So the first thing to note in, in Zacchaeus' story is that you've seen the overview of it, reading the verses as I did to you. One thing that stands out is uh, he humbled himself before the Lord. When the Lord uh, came to the tree and looked up and told him to come down, uh, he humbled himself. And uh, he uh, subscribed to what the Lord was saying and what he was doing and the work that the Lord was already working in his heart, not just his head. The second thing about the ruler was in Luke 18, he didn't, uh, he didn't subscribe at all to what the Lord said. He, first of all, tried to explain himself that he'd kept all the commandments, at least the harder ones, as we call them, the ones that are in the, tucked in there that some folks have and have had a hard time with. So he said, I've done all that. That's, I've done that from my youth up, as if to imply that's, that's just part of my life. That's just who I was and how I was, and, and I did it. I've done all that. That's not a problem. The Lord said, I think I know where the problem is. There's one thing you lack, and the one thing you lack is that you're depending on, you're relying on, your riches. So I want you to do this. I want you to take all your riches and I want you to distribute them to the poor. And then you want, I want you to come and follow me and you can be my disciple, as it were. And the young man was sorrowful, exceedingly sorrowful. Why? Because he thought a lot of his riches and he was being asked to give them all up just to be acceptable to the Lord. The Lord perceives his sorrowfulness and the Lord makes a profound statement Bound in verse 24 of 18, how hardly, how difficult 
It is for those who have riches to get to heaven. That's an unbelievable statement. For the first thing, I, I, man life, I wouldn't tell anybody I was rich. That's why we poor boys talk about being poor boys. You say, does that make a difference? Well, it wouldn't make any difference if you had riches and you said you were poor. The Lord would know what's really true. What the Lord's looking for is what we do with what we have and to reflect the fact that we've surrendered ourselves to him. And when we've surrendered ourselves to him, everything that we call ours belongs to him. That's what he's looking for. So in Zacchaeus' case, that's, uh, that's pretty much the, de- the defining issue of difference between these two because immediately Zacchaeus is giving up some of what he had, willfully, gladly, and does so, by the way, before a rule is set down. The Lord didn't say to Zacchaeus, okay, Zacchaeus, if you're going to be my disciple, I want you to give a fourth of everything you own, I'll give it all away, I want you to do it. Uh, he, he didn't. There's no statement in the passage that that's what the, the Lord told Zacchaeus or if that's what Zacchaeus heard. What is true, out of the goodness of his heart that God had prompted him with, he changed his position of being a hard-nosed rich publican, which the Jews called a sinner, and he was willing to give it all up, whatever it takes. His seemingly submission and humility before the Lord was fully accepted. And the further it went in the conversation, the better it got. There's also a point to be made here to us believers. We must be careful. Here, at this point, if God has prospered you, and in a sense, he's prospered all of us, and might I tell you that probably the truth would be that all of us in this room would be rich compared to the standard of living in which the context of these two stories were given. These folks would have, uh, would have uh, thought they'd gone to heaven, died and gone to heaven, if they have what most of us have. So to them, we'd be rich. You'd be rich. I'd be rich. We'd all be rich. So the truth is, there's something in this story that you and I probably need to get a good handle on. I think there's part of that right here. Let me point it out. If God has prospered you, you should be more faithful to the Lord than you ever have been before. Certainly better than you were before you were saved. Certainly that. But better even as you begin to grow in the Lord, better in every fashion toward Him. For instance, more faithful in your private time with Him, your private worship, your private devotion, your reading of the Scriptures on a day-to-day basis, your spending time in prayer to Him, acknowledging the things that you would not necessarily share with anybody else on the face of this earth but you would be open and honest and transparent before him every time you bowed your heart and your head and opened Bible before you. You'd be more faithful to that than you've ever been before. Also important to note that uh, you would be more faithful in your public worship than you ever were before. That is to say that you'd be more faithful Faithful to the church and Sunday school attendance, worship service, Sunday evening, Wednesday night. I mean, every time the church fellowship came together, you'd be right in the mix. More faithful than you've ever been before if the Lord has prospered you. And the reason why we would do that and why we would expect that is that it tells him. Your attitude toward those kind of factors tells him 
that you've not forgotten where your wealth came from. Whatever you have, you have because he gave it. I, I don't know if I had a dollar for every time I have said that at the pulpit of the New Life Baptist Church over these 30 or something years. The truth of the matter is I'd be a very rich man because of this simple truth. If everything you understand you have, I don't care what it is you have, whether it's, it's riches or whether it's talent or whether it's intelligence or whether it's a skill, whatever it is you have, I don't know if we'll ever get it into our minds and our hearts, but what we have to get into our minds and hearts is you got it before because he gave it. So in one sense of the word, what you have doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be big bank account. It just has to be a perception and an understanding that what you have, he gave you. So if it's money and we call you rich, that's fine. If you have wisdom, knowledge, insight, then he gave that to you. You have riches in that. Or, or if it's talent, you may be talented. And, and so, but he gave it to you. So for you to show him, you understand it came from him, you ought to be more faithful to him, and you ought to be more humble before him, and you ought to be more submissive to him, and you ought to be more willing, as it were, to do his will than you've ever been before. Because that's the story of Zacchaeus. Here's a guy who, who just couldn't seem to do enough. You know, I, I mean, I'll do that, I'll give this up, I'll, I'll give this to the poor, and uh, whatever, I'll do it. Well, that's the way it ta- what it says and the way that our lives talk to people around us. It tells them how serious we are about our personal faith. Your life and your lifestyle, as with my life and my lifestyle, becomes a display to of, I best say, not to, display of your heartfelt gratitude to him for his goodness to you. And the way that you express that by your kindnesses and faithfulness to him people around you very quickly catch on i say oh i understand now why you go to church i understand now why you have devotions i understand now why you spend time in the word and why you spend time in prayer i understand that it's an expression of our gratitude it's an expression of our understanding of where all of this good comes from and at any moment it can all dry up if he chooses but the good news is when you're really rich in the lord even if it dries up, even if it all evaporates, you rejoice in the Lord. Because you remind yourself of what Job said when he lost it all. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. So whatever you have, recognize he gave it, and recognize he can take it away just as quickly. And I personally believe that your faithfulness in mind reflects it to whether or not we're serious about, as in the case with whether we're a, a Zacchaeus or whether we're a ruler. How the ruler reacted, I'm so sorrowful in losing everything that he would have had to. I mean, if he, if he was going to follow the Lord, he had to give it all up. And he was so sorrowful about that. You know, um, I always go back to the story about David when he'd gone off and uh, was fighting and he'd taken his men with him and he came back to that uh, village and his families and all the folks that were there of his men, their families, etc. all their possessions were there. When he got back, the uh, Philistines, I believe, had come in and, and uh, raided the camp, taken all the family members and, and so forth and taken them away. And uh, the men who had been traveling with him uh, 
talked about stoning him, killing him, killing the great man David, the great future king of Israel. And they talked about killing him. David wept. The men wept. They, they, they were just beside themselves. And the David, seeing that he lost everything, including his family, there's an interesting verse there. Years ago, I was invited to preach to the uh, Farm Bureau meeting over at the college. They asked me to come over there and preach to all the, the meeting when they have the Farm Bureau meeting and they have all their people in and they make their decisions about new policy and whatever. They asked me if I'd come over and preach. What? Asking me if I'd come to a Farm Bureau meeting and preach to a group of people I'd never met uh, is like asking me if I'd like to have German chocolate cake right now. I'd eat it in a heartbeat. So they said, would you come? So in a heartbeat, I'd come. And I went over. I got to preach to them, and I preached on that text of Scripture. And I talked about David encouraged himself in the Lord. And I told those people that uh, you farmers here don't have a clue what next year is going to hold. You may lose everything that you've got. You may lose your crop. It may be dry, and you may not get the range you need. And then the grain prices may not be what they need to be. And you may lose out on that. You may have to sell every tractor on your farm. But I'll tell you something. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you ought to be able to encourage yourself in the Lord. When we get to the point where we can't do that, then the good, good sign about it is that we trusted in what we had and not who we know. And when you do that, you can be an unhappy camper overnight in less than a heartbeat. You can be an unhappy camper. But David encouraged himself in the Lord, and the, the, the long of the short story is that he and the men went out. They got everything back and captured the men who took them and got their families back, and things worked out fine. But David doesn't seem to have forgotten that because even in the Psalms there's allusion to those kind of moments where David really had to ask himself, what am I trusting? What am I really depending on? Where is my hope really resting? What if I lose my money? What if I lose my job? What if I lose everything that I own? Would I be like the ruler who was sorrowful, exceedingly sorrowful? And would I turn my back on the Lord? Or would it be I'd be like Zacchaeus who uh, would just already given it up and say, I give it all to you. You just let me have enough to live and you supply my needs on a daily basis and I don't care what you do with what I dedicate to you. You see, riches do tell you things about who you are and where it is your trust lies. It's interesting here in this verse 1 of chapter 19, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Uh, I said a moment ago about it being a resort city, and the Lord wouldn't take time off to rest like uh, some would do. But in this particular case, it's an interesting thing that um, the Old Testament, uh, as I was reading this the other day and chasing rabbits on my own study, I recognize there's a passage in the book of Joshua in chapter 6 where the city was, uh, in fact, Joshua made a statement. He said, Cursed be the man who rebuilds Jericho. So Jericho technically was under a curse, and the curse initially was upon the man who built it, and then many agree that that passed it on to the city itself. So it could have been that this city being under such a condition 
that uh, the Lord wouldn't stay in the city because it was considered condemned of God and cursed of God and so forth. So while Jesus passed through it, uh, he still did good. And verse number 2 says, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And I would say, even though the city was under a curse, I believe the Lord looked at it and said, but the people aren't in the sense that uh, there's people here who need to hear the gospel. There are folks here who need to be told what the Bible says or hears the gospel message as we have it to give. Uh, they were under a greater curse, and that is the curse of their sin. Uh, only Jesus Christ can take away that curse of sin. Let me quickly remind you of a passage, and it came to me this afternoon, and I wrote it in a text. Look over from where you are, and look, look over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and look down to verse number 10. Galatians 3, verse 10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And that's an important verse because that one goes along with a passage in James, if you recall, that uh, if a man it tries to keep the whole law and he offends in one point, he's guilty of all of it. And this verse says the guy that doesn't continue in keeping it, that guy is cursed of God, and therefore he would not be acceptable to him. Verse 11 in Galatians 3 says, Galatians 3.11, But that man, that no man, is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Verse 12, And the law is not of faith, but of man that doeth them shall live in them. Verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. So the passage of Scripture, Christ became, as it were, a curse for us. So in this case, here you have the one that eventually is going to end up on the cross of Calvary and become a curse for Zacchaeus, speaking to him face to face and seeing this guy and coming down, as it were, and having to pass through this community of Jericho to get to where he was going to, Jer to Jerusalem. It's interesting uh, that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ may have known all about the curse on the city, but he also knew there was a guy in there who was cursed with his sin, and somebody needed to rescue it. It's interesting, I was uh, reading a few days ago, and being reminded, and my wife reminded me the dates of it. It was January 17 and 88 that Australia the country, the continent of Australia, became a depository in their penal colony of criminals. That is, they established the eastern part of Australia as a criminal uh, colony. And the folks who were placed there by the British, these criminals were used to physically uh, build the country of Australia. Uh, that area was, uh, um, was pretty much controlled by what we would call a military of some sort, and they just kept bringing in these people who were, you know, criminals who had been committing crimes, and they were shipped off down there. And for a long time, I always thought of Australia as just one big, you know, prison. You know, you just stick all these criminals in there. Well, the fact of the matter is, that's the way it started, and that's the way it was for a long period of time, and much of the work that was done on uh, building it as a country was done by criminals to make it what it was under a rule of British law. But I must admit that yet America sent and still sends missionaries to Australia 
Because the people there, no matter how the Australians came to be, they need to be evangelized just as did Jericho. And so to this very day, we still send missionaries from America to Australia, no matter that it started as a penal colony of where the British stuck all their criminals. So the fact is, uh, it's um, even true in this case with our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 15, that he said, The Lord came into this world to save sinners, and Paul wrote, Of whom I am chief. Paul claimed that business of the chief of sinners. It's interesting in this passage of Scripture, verse number 2 says that Zacchaeus was the chief among the publicans. To the uh, people of that day, the uh, folks in, among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they said the word publican to them meant sinner. So the idea would have been here that uh, Zacchaeus is considered the chief among all sinners because he was chief among the publicans. Remember, the publicans were those who, uh, uh, they were not republicans, they were publicans. Remember, keep that right, because uh, some folks uh, get that term mixed up. Those who are republicans are not publicans. Publicans were people who uh, collected taxes for the Roman government. They were, uh, positionally, they were sold off. Uh, You could be a tax collector if you passed uh, just a few basic laws. Uh, and rules considering where you lived, et cetera, et cetera, and probably how big you were or how tough you were because it was almost like a mafia. You bought the right to be a tax collector, and you had to pay X amount to the Roman government. Anything above what you had to pay them that you could collect without killing the people you took it from, you could do it. So a publican was just a big uh, macho man that went in and demanded X amount of dollars for taxes, and the Roman government didn't care how they got the money. They just wanted their share, and you could get all you could and bleed these people for all they were worth. So what they did, most of them were Jewish people who did it to Jewish people, and the Jews hated them. I mean, they hated them. So all through the Bible, when you find that, that makes this story more pungent and more evil because you have a Jewish man, and the name Zacchaeus was a common Jewish name, so it's pretty assured. Here you have a Jewish man collecting money from the Jewish people to pay off the taxes to the Romans, and you have this guy that they hate like they hate any wicked thing on the face of the earth, and this is who Jesus has come to talk to. And the fact that Zacchaeus was rich is added to the end of that statement. Verse 2, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was the chief among the publicans. And by the way, chief among the publicans indicates that and suggests that he had other publicans under his authority. So he could call the shots, and it's a real possibility that he himself did not purchase the right to collect money, but he had a bunch of underlings that he demanded of them X amount of what they gathered, and then they could keep extra and then you know bleed the people for whatever. But the... Point to this point, I guess you'd say. The point to this point in verse number 2 is the emphasis is upon the issue of riches. I say to you that um, next time we're together, I want to point on that just a bit because I believe there's something there that all of us uh, need to to take hold on and understand and um, make sure that uh, wherever we are in our economy and economics that uh, we, uh, we see where the Bible and what the Bible says about riches and uh, not get uh, not get caught up with the uh, ideal of this world and what it says about them. 
this world will tell you to go play the lottery, get all the money you can, and just, boy, just go nuts over it and become greedy, covetous, and selfish, self-centered, and you'll live for the money. I mean, you'll be driven by the money. And uh, the Bible says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't you dare get into that. So the next time we're together, we'll talk about that because we need to remind ourselves of it no matter where you are in a financial ladder. Let's bow in prayer, and uh, we'll be dismissed from here. We won't sing, and so this evening I thank you for coming and being faithful, and thank you for joining us for our communion, and may the Lord bless you as you leave. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace wherein you loved us and cared for us. Thank you for the revelation you've given us of yourself, and thank you, Father, for the privilege we have to handle it, and we recognize that in the handling of it, there is a responsibility, and all of us have it. We have to be careful how we handle the Scriptures. And so I pray tonight that you will bless these truths to our heart, help us to embrace them fully, and, Father, then help us to be doers of the Word and not just hearers. Help us to learn the ramification of these, and pray you'll bless our people. May they, Father, embrace them and understand them, and may they change their lives for their good and for your glory. Now give our people safety as they head out of here. Give them a safe trip home, a good night's rest, and a great week ahead. And it may be to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.